there. I think it's on. Yeah, that's good. Romans 8. How's everyone doing this morning? We trust you had a, have had a great weekend, uh, great time in the Word of God, great fellowship and so forth. And um, I do want to say thanks to the folks here, the saints here, and the whole ministry here for the uh, invite again each year to be a part of the conference. And as Rick mentioned, we mentioned earlier that remember our, our conference in February. So if you guys want to come to Southern California in February, it's not on. Let's see, that's, that's there. Should we check the battery there real quick? Okay. Okay. Uh, what I was saying, oh, it's on now, I think. Yeah, it's on now. Yeah, good. Uh, what we were saying is that, remember, we do have the uh, conference there in Southern California in February, so I know how really super cold it can get here in Arizona and Chicago, right, <laughs> in February. But come out and see us. Many of you have been there in the past, and uh, uh, we've just enjoyed the fellowship together, so would encourage you to do that as well. And we do want to, I do again want to say, uh, uh, send greetings from my wife, Lori, and from the saints there in Southern California. Many of them are actually watching online. You know for sure Ken and Dan and some of the others have been watching online, and Gene and some of the others, so you're getting some good uh, feedback from th th them, kind of a brother-sister church, right? Your ministry here, our ministry out there. So it's just great, uh, great fellowship and everything. So that, that song we just sang, by the way, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, there, there's a phrase in here that every time I think about and sing this song, it's just, it's just wonderful. And it's the third stanza. If, I don't know if you have the song book, so let me just read this real quick. It says, See from his head his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. And then it says this, did ever such love or sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? The writer, you talk about him seeing whoever thought thorns, the picture, the embodiment of the curse, com could, could compose a crown that's so ev evidentially rich of the love and mercy of God. Isn't that wonderful? Every time I sing that song, it just, it kind of stops me in my tracks, so to speak, and says, slow down and think about this, <laughs> you know, so, okay, let's open our Bibles this morning. I think I said the Romans chapter number eight, uh, Romans chapter number eight, all week, and we have been talking about the idea of building on, on the foundation, building on the foundation of the Word of God divided, building on the foundation that you know you have the Word of God. Uh, last night, Brother Pastor Jordan spent the time really focusing on that hope out there in glory. We're going to pick, uh, we're going to pick up basically where he was last night, and then the objective this morning is to. I think I asked you to go to Romans eight, right? Hold Romans 8 and go to Romans 13, and, and, and here's where the title is taken from. Here's where the, where, where the, goal, the, the, object, or the goal is taken from. It's actually Romans 12, and you'll, you'll notice it in verse 12, Romans 12, 12, and 13. And it says this, rejoicing in hope. That, that's the title this morning, rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation. Continuing instant in prayer, distributing, uh, uh, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. So the goal this morning is to 
ask, how, how is it that, how does rejoicing in hope actually sustain us in this life, in affliction? Because that's what it does. And so how does it do that? And when you look at these verses here, we're actually going to go back and we're going to spend most of our time there in Romans 8. But So rejoicing in hope. Who is our hope, by the way? That's Christ. Christ is our hope, right? And then doesn't Paul repeatedly say in Philippians, rejoice in Christ? So it's interesting. You were to rejoice in hope. Well, that's that hope of glory. But because you rejoice in Christ, that's why you can rejoice in hope. Because it's all based on him. And then he connects rejoicing in hope with what? Patient and tribulation. Why would you connect those two? Why, 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 connect, why connect the idea of rejoicing in hope with being patient in tribulation? Yeah, tribulation works patience. And the way to get through that is to remember that hope. Right? And then continuing instant in prayer. You know, we've all heard of things like, you know, instant potatoes and instant rice. And how about instant prayer, right? <laughs> right? But you see how he links the idea of, okay, what? What are we going to keep our mind on? And therefore, where are we going to go to to find our joy? And, and then we're going to let the word of God get us through the tribulation. Not the tribulation period, of course, but the tribulations in life. And we do that because we just keep talking to the Lord. We keep thinking about his word. And then he, he says, distributing to the necessity of saints. It's like he's saying, okay, then get on with the ministry. Right? And, and remember, given to hospitality. What, what's the first word you see in the word hospitality? Hospital. I remember hearing Brother Jordan years ago say, when you look at that word hospitality, you see the word hospital there. And he said, you know, the saints are, are, are wounded and hurting. And we're all saints. And we're all kind of wounded and hurting sometimes. And if it's not... If it's not you that's wounded and hurting now, just give enough time and you'll be wounded and hurting. <laughs> and, and so minister to someone else and they'll come around and minister to you. And so what I want to do this morning is, especially folk, we're going to go back to where Brother Jordan took us last night in Romans 8. And we're going to go from Romans 8, 18 to 8, 39. And we're just going to kind of, we're looking at the question, asking the question, how does rejoicing in hope being patient in tribulation and continuing prayer. How does it actually sustain us? How does it get us through? Okay, so turn back with me then over to Romans 8, and we're going to start at verse 18. This will, we can go through this rather quickly because, like I say, Pastor Jordan went through this last night. We're just going to, we're going to bring this back to our frame of reference this morning. So he says this. Follow along with me now. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, 
to it the redemption of our body. Anybody else waiting for that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he says, for we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that, we see not. Then do we with, what, what's the word there? Yeah, that, by the way, that's the challenging part of that one, right? <laughs> Patience, wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. That, by the way, that's the only place in Paul's epistles where instead of him saying, we know, we know, we know, he says, we know not. That's the only place he says that. Very interesting. He says, likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know. Interesting. 26, we know not. Verse 28, and we know. That all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are, who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called them, he also justified. And whom he justified them, he also glorified. God sees this done already. And then, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Let's read verse 38 and 39 out loud together, right? For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's unite our hearts in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for this just marvelous passage of Scripture that is before us right here. And had this not been written down in your word, then not only would we not know the reality that you are conveying to us here, but if it was not your word that said this, we would have no reason and grounds to believe it was so. Father, we, we ask for insight and wisdom. We ask that we would see to a greater degree with your eyes that glory which shall be revealed in us. In Christ's precious name we ask this. Amen. Again, the question is, how does rejoicing and hope help us? How does it sustain us through the troubles in our life? Okay, let me... Let me ask it this way how many of you right now in your life are going through some kind of troubles some kind of challenges some kind of difficulties like four hands man you guys is no no one else lives on the planet i live on or something <laughs> come on <laughs> yeah you said it can only raise it that high so <laughs> is that what you said so 
You know, everyone here today and everyone listening on the internet, by the way, we do want to welcome those listening on the internet as well, but ev everyone, things happen in life because it's life, right? We live in a fallen creation, a sin-cursed world, and where Satan is the god of this world. So we all have various things that really can weigh heavy on our hearts and our minds. Sometimes they can keep us awake at night, things like that. Uh, you're trying to figure stuff out. And so maybe when you came here and walked into the building this morning, you had some of those things on your heart and your mind trying to figure it out and, and everything. Okay, so then let me ask you a different way. We spent about, oh, maybe three or four minutes talking about just very briefly the passage in Romans 12, Rejoicing in Hope. And then we read from Romans 8, 18 to 39. While we were reading this and thinking about this together, were we thinking about our problems? That's the answer. See what it just see what it does. It 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 refocuses our thinking on what what really is going on. That's what it's able to do. And it's fascinating because when you, when you think about the idea of rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, tribulation is 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 real. Sufferings are real. And when he says back at verse 18, look back at Romans 8, 18 there, he says, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, and are they real? Do they really happen? They do. He says the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with what? The last part of that verse. Well, then doesn't the glory also have to be not only real, I don't want to say as real as suffering because he's, Paul says it's not even worthy to be compared. See that? So the way that focusing on hope, and hope, as Brother Pastor Jordan mentioned last night, when you look at verse 19, see the phrase earnest expectation. When you, when you see the word hope, think of those two words right there. Hope is the idea that God promised something. He cannot lie he intends to bring it to pass so when it says that therefore being justified by faith we have peace with God through Lord Jesus Christ by whom also we have access by faith and disgrace when we stand and rejoice in what hope so confident expectation of the glory of God you're gonna be there God says so let me ask it a different way and say it a different way is Christ going to be glorified by the Father? Are you in Christ? Is Christ going to be there? So who else must be there? You in Christ. So as you think about a passage like this, and as, as, we, as we allow the word of God to, you know, you read the verses and you think about them and so forth, what it does, it, it takes our mind off of the sufferings, the problems, the, the challenges that we have which we have, they're very real. It just refocuses everything. It puts, puts it in a different, a different lens, as it were, all right? And then what happens is, in fact, look, if you go back to chapter 12 there, go back to chapter 12, what, watch, watch how he links these together again. So chapter 12, verse 12, he says, okay, rejoicing in hope. So we rejoice in the truths of Romans 8, 18 through 39, right? And then we're patient in tribulation. That is, we've allowed the word of God to work in us and sustain us through what we're going through. We're, we're continuing, we're just talking to the Lord all the time and talking to other believers and encouraging each other. And then we're getting on with the ministry. Verse 13, distributing to the necessity of saints. What, 
What's happening in verse 13 when he says distributing to the necessity of saints given to hospitality? What's happening in verse, in, in, in verse 13 there? What's that? What's that? Yeah, sharing the word, gospel's working. What'd you say, April? Esteeming up. See the key right there? We're taking our eyes off of ourselves. One of the greatest ways to get over the challenges and problems and sufferings that we face is to get our eyes off of ourselves. We sung the song last night, was it right? We closed with, turn your eyes upon Jesus. And so it's fascinating. Think about it. The, the, the wise counsel of God right here in his word and then just to take him and let it work in our lives now go back with me to Romans 8 and we're going to just work from verse 18 to verse 39 we won't get all the verses in there's just no way you guys know that right and and so let's just get what we can like what he says I reckon you know Paul was a southerner and not from Arizona. He was from Texas, right? They reckon there. <laughs> that, that word reckon. We actually really said that a lot in San Antonio. Really, we did. It was common language. But that, the word reckon is like an accounting word. That, that's God, God says, you know, when you, when you add and subtract and multiply everything out that he lays on the table and so forth. When you, check, when you check God's books and you check the bottom line, he says, here's what my numbers add up to. Okay? I reckon this, God says. He says... Uh, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed where in us. In order to find comfort in that verse, and there is comfort in that verse, you have to know the glory is real. You have to trust it is so. And Pastor Jordan spent the, wonder, the message, the wonderful message last night talking about that. Wasn't that a blessing to get, boy, you talk about getting our eyes out there in the heavenly places. In order to receive the spiritual strength and comfort and capacity of that verse, you want to slow down and meditate upon and think about that that glory is real. And, and you don't put the sufferings and the glory on a scale balancing each other out. The verse says, you don't even put them on the same scale. You don't even compare the two. It's so far beyond. We are not the only ones waiting, by the way, for the glory which shall be revealed. Look how he does this. He says, for the earnest expectation of the creature waited for the manifestation of the sons of God. I love that verse. That the, the, the creature is, is waiting to find out who's going to actually run the show. Do you know what I mean by that? From when God creates, created Adam, he put into Adam's hands, Adam was to be the monarch of the planet, right? Was he not? Adam was to have dominion over everything, fish of the sea, fowl of the air, everything. The caretaker of planet Earth, Adam falls. Satan takes the crown and so forth. How has this creation, what has its experience been in relationship to man being its ruler? Not so good. It, it's experience. In fact, look at what he goes on to say. It says, verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creature waited for the manifestation of the sons of God. It's, it's waiting to find out who's going to do a better job at running the creation. Right? It's waiting to find out who the sons of God are. Who are going to run the creation in wisdom and God's word. He says, for the creature 
was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Who was it that subjected the creature to vanity? God did. Did the creature sin? No, Adam sinned. And when Adam sinned, one of the things that God did in relationship to the creation is he cursed the ground for man's sake. Why curse the ground? The ground didn't sin. The trees didn't sin. The deer, the lions, the gazelles, they didn't sin. The fish, the birds, they didn't sin. Why, why subject them to the bondage of corruption? That verse says God had a reason for doing it. When the crown fell off Adam's head, as it were, Satan picks up that crown and says, it's mine. And God says, you're right. For now, it's yours. But you know what? You are not going to be able to have the capacity to bring forth the glory on this earth that I'm going to bring forth when my son, Jesus Christ, takes it back. He, he limited, by, by putting the creation under the curse, he limited the capacity and ability of the creation to bring forth glory because he wanted to make sure that the glory was not going to go to Satan. God had a purpose on limiting this. So when it says at verse 20, 21, he says, because the creature itself also shall be what? Delivered shall be delivered. When we talk about our salvation and our deliverance, we're not the only one that's groaning, as it were. He says, but because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty, not just the liberty, but the glorious liberty of the children of God. That's why I said back up in verse 19 that the creature is waiting to figure out who's going to run the show in the glory of God. I want you to think about a couple of fascinating passages that I think are, are, are pictures of what the creature is waiting for. And I'm going to have you go to Luke chapter 19 here. Go to Luke chapter number 19. And also Psalms 96. We're going to try to do these kind of quickly. Look over to Luke 19. And, and what, we're, what we're kind of thinking about right now is the idea that, that the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption. But that means right now it's waiting, right? Waiting to be delivered. Remember this event when the Lord Jesus Christ comes riding into Jerusalem and it's about a week or so before he goes to the cross, he rides in on that, on that, that donkey and, and he's going to go to the temple and he cleanses the temple and everything and the, the people are, are shouting, crying out. Look, you're in Luke 19, are you? Watch this, verse 38, saying, get, get the picture. I mean, he, he comes descending into Jerusalem as it were and and the disciples there, and you've got a big group there, and they're, they're shouting out, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. That, that's, that's Psalms 118, by the way. That's what they're going to declare at his second coming, right? It says, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. See, it's, 
it's like they're uttering prophecy. They don't realize what they're saying because they just a couple of days later they, they call for his crucifixion. Kind of confused, right? Talk about, talk about mob mentality, how quickly it can change. Watch this now. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitudes uh, said in him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry. You understand? It's like the creation sees the Messiah. He's on earth. The earth is waiting for the deliverance. And here comes the deliverer. The people are shouting out, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And it's like the earth is just, here he comes to deliver us. You understand what he means by that? When he says, if, if these hold their peace, the stones are going to cry out. The earth is waiting to be delivered as it were. When, when, when he says, you can let go of Luke 19 there, go with me over to Psalms 96. Psalms 96. Watch how this psalm starts. This is a, a prophecy about the Lord coming <laughs> What's what? What's what's going to happen? Sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth, and they're going to. They're not doing this today. You understand that? Sing unto the Lord. Bless His name. Show forth His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the heathen. His wonders among all people. See, this is prophecy. Verse 9, jump ahead. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Say among the heathen that what? The Lord reigneth. This is the future. This is when he's come back and established his kingdom. The world also shall be established that it should not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Okay, now watch. Verse 11, let the heavens rejoice. By the way, that means all of them. That means those portions of the heavens in which Satan still occupies and his angels, they're going to be kicked out by the time that verse is actually seen as reality. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea, what? Roar the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice. When Paul says there in Romans 8, the creature itself shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption, it will be. Apostle Paul knew the Old Testament prophecy that the creation itself was going to be delivered from the bondage of corruption. And when Jesus Christ said the thing about that, these, if these should hold their peace, the stones would cry out. It's like the earth itself knew the time of Christ's visitation, but Israel didn't know. Isn't that something? And it's not just that the earth, it's not just that the curse is going to be lifted off the earth. And when that curse is lifted off, off the earth, it's like God is going to release the constrained production capacity of the earth. He's going to set it free to demonstrate its capacity to glorify 
its rightful creator, the Lord Jesus Christ. You talk about this earth putting on a show. And then he's going to do the same thing in the heavens, kick Satan out and so forth, and he's going to release the capacity of the heavens. Hmm, interesting. Darkness. Think about darkness. i got, I got to stay on track, okay? <laughs> Something's going to happen to the darkness, by the way, when the heavens are all opened. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. And, and the glory of his, the light of his glory is going to shine throughout the heavens. He's going to release the capacity, the, the bound, constrained capacity of heaven, heavens and the earth going to set all that free to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And guess who's a part of that? You are. We are. This, this is real. This is not Disney. This is not make-believe. This is not, yeah, this is not some just Star Wars kind of a concept. This is real Star Wars. This is the real one. Darth Vader is going to lose. He is going to be kicked out. You know? Yeah. Verse 22 now, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. When, when King David was old and ready to die, the scripture says this. It says, it says that he said, I go the way of all. He doesn't say I go the way of all men, which, which is true. But he said, I go the way of all the earth. It's because David understood that the curse didn't only, and the sin didn't only extend to man, but the curse is placed upon the earth. So the earth also is experiencing the corruption of sin and death. But it's all going to be reversed. It's all going to be lifted and set free. And he says here, and not verse 23, and not only they, but ourselves also which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even ourselves with which, which do what? We still groan. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit, but we still groan. What does that tell you? It tells you that right now God has not lifted us from the curse. He gave us the Holy Spirit, yet we still groan. That verse alone demonstrates that the concept of health, wealth, prosperity, gospel is a total sham, a total deception. We have the Holy Spirit to guarantee, and yet we still groan. Sin is resident in the flesh. He condemns sin in the flesh. That's why the body of a believer still dies, but your soul will never die. Your, your body will just go to the dust of the ground, as it were, because sin is condemned in the flesh. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves. What's the next word there? Waiting. That, again, that's kind of the hard part, isn't it? Right? So, something that's so good... You just, you know, guys, let me ask it this way, guys, and girls, okay? Okay, you know, you, you were dating that sweetheart and everything, and you, you asked her the question, we have marry me, and, and shock, she said yes! <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. And so, so you're waiting for your wedding day, right? It's like, man, it can't come too soon. Although, maybe not, but anyway, I'm saying there's that anticipation, right? You're waiting for it. You're longing for it. It, it, it had the power to take you through that. 
and then sustain you through that life. He says they're waiting for. Waiting for the adoption. To wit, what, what's the adoption? That's the redemption of our body. That's the redemption of our body. We're waiting for that time when God is going to make known to the creature who the sons of God are. And the way he's going to make it known is when that shout happens, he's going to call the body of Christ forth, present it to the judgment seat of Christ, present it to the Father, and it's like the Father is going to say, okay, creation, heavenly places in particular, here's who's going to run the show. And you talk about the heavens clapping their hands. Remember, man was a little lower than the angels. Psalms 8, right? But the body of Christ is higher than the angels. He's going to turn the heavenly places over to the body of Christ. And the heavens are just going to be amazed at his capacity to glorify Christ in and through you. For we are saved by hope. Saved there is the idea of Save from despair, from discouragement, depression, things like that. When, when you go through some kind of affliction, have any of you all ever gone through some kind of affliction? More than maybe just stubbing your toe or hitting your thumb with a hammer, <laughs> right? Have you ever gone through some kind of affliction over an extended period of time? If you experience some kind of affliction over an extended period of time, it, it wears you out. Right? It just frankly can get you depressed. You can get in depression. Right? We can speak by experience. And it can weigh really heavy on you. And the only way to get out of that, you've got to get back in the book. You've got to get back in the book. And you've got to make that choice to renew your mind, to trust the word instead of focusing on the experiences. And the way it saves us it saves us from things like that, despair, losing hope. It's because we focus on that God cannot lie. He means what he says. He says we're saved by hope, and hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with what? It's, it's that idea of with patience, wait. It's the patience part that's the tough part. So that takes us back to Romans 5, right? It's tribulation that actually produces that patience. Let me ask it a different way. Think back to your life a year ago and ask yourself this question. Over this last year, compared to, say, where you were a year ago spiritually, where you are now, if you were to make an objective evaluation of your spiritual maturity and growth, not emotional, but objective, would you say that you are more mature than you were a year ago? You've learned more, experienced more. See, growth happens because life happens and the Word of God works when we believe it. Now, just for time's sake here, I'm going to, I'm going to jump ahead to verse 31. I'm not at all trying to slight the next, you know, 26 to 30. But I'm going to jump ahead to verse 31 because we're going to run out of time. 
Now, in the light of, like verse 18 all the way down, verse 31, what shall we then say to these things? Well, what shall we say to these things? They're either true or they're not true. If they're not true, then there is no hope. There is no purpose to anything out there. But if these things are true, and when he says, what shall we then say to these things? You understand the immediate context is right here, but when you think about the bigger context, he's, he's taken us from Romans 1. Remember, remember Rick the other day talked about the foundation of Romans 1, 1 through 5, justification of a hell-bound, hell-deserving sinner. We got saved by the blood of the Lamb. We were justified by faith alone and the finished work of Christ alone, a total, complete, free gift of God. We were not worthy of it. We did not have to pay for it. All we could do is come as a sinner, believing what the Word of God says about that, trusting what Christ did, that it was so and that God cannot lie. He's, he's telling us the truth. So then he justifies us by faith. He gives us eternal life, his kind of life, as a free gift. And he puts righteousness to our account by putting us into Christ and us and Christ in us. And then he comes along and says, not only that, I made you dead to sin. I made you alive unto myself, God says. I, I, I put you in a total realm of newness of life. I made you dead to that which will condemn you. That is the law. When he says, when he says back in Romans 6, 14, he says, For sin shall not have dominion over you. Well, why not? I still sin. Here's why. Because you're not under the law, but under grace. You're not under a system that can and will determine your eternal destiny. You're under grace, which is the system that has determined your eternal destiny. So then you come to Romans chapter number 8, and here's what it means to walk in the Spirit. Life in Christ Jesus. That's a law. As real as the law of gravity, as real as all the various laws of physics, life in Christ Jesus, that's what we have. That law made me free from this other law, the law of sin and death. You take all that here to Romans chapter number 8, and now the sufferings of this present time, they're not even worthy to be compared to glory, which it, it's going to be revealed. It's just a matter of time. That's all it is. It's not a matter of truth. It's a matter of time. So we're waiting for it. So then he says at verse 31 there, he says, What shall we then say to these things? Let's say that God, it, that Paul didn't, didn't make that next statement there. If God be for us, who can be against us? We'll come back, back to that moment earlier. Let's just say he didn't finish that verse that way. But let's say he still asks the question. Let's say he says, what shall we then say to these things? Okay, how would you answer that question? How would we have answered it? How would you answer it? Of all that we've learned from Romans chapter 1 to this point, if Paul was to have asked the question, what shall we then say to these things, but not said the next statement, okay, well, what shall we say to these things? We might say, wow, these are pretty cool things, aren't they? Right? These are... This is pretty good stuff. Salvation free and full. But the way that he answers that statement, what shall we say to these things, is not from our perspective, though our perspective should be God's perspective. His answer is, 
What does God say to the answer to that question is? What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us. What does that statement demand? That he is for us. If God's for us, then who can be against us? Oftentimes the person that is against us the most is ourself. It's our doubt. Doubt and unbelief comes from our hearts. Christ says that which comes out of a man is comes from his heart. We have to make a choice that we're going to believe that God is for us. And if you start at Romans 1 and come to Romans chapter number 8, if you even, even to a small degree believe this, you've got to come to the conclusion that God is for us. He really is. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be? Can, can in a sense of who can successfully be? People will try. You will try. The adversary will try. But it will not be successful in the end. Now watch his answer. Watch how he deals with this. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Just stop there for a second. What is God's attitude towards his son? What does he think about his son? He loves him deeply. God truly lives for his son. God delights in his son. When the book of Revelation, when the creatures ask, ask the Lord, they say, for thy pleasure they are in war created. When they make that statement, think about it. God comes up with this idea of a marvelous creation for the purpose of glorifying his son. So he gives the right to the son to be the creator, right? When it comes to the issue of creation, it's going to be a demonstration of how much God loves his son. He says, for thy pleasure they are and were created. Not in the sense of God was bored and he's looking for some way to have pleasure. God says, when that verse says, for thy pleasure, his pleasure is Christ. Creation is about his intention to glorify Christ. He holds Christ above his own name as it were. Why would he spare not his son for me? Who am I? Who are you? When that question is, wait a minute, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? How do we know he's for us? Because he spared not his own son. He delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him? The with him is the key part of that. How shall he not with him also freely give, freely give, freely give us all things? Is God for you? How do you know? Cross the Calvary. He spared not his own son. And then, well, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? What does that mean to lay something to someone's charge? What's that mean? Yeah, you're like, you make an accusation, you're trying to have an indictment against them and so forth. You see some fault that they did that you think is worthy of being brought to the court's attention. 
right, and that they should be punished. Well, who shall add anything to the charge of God's elect? See, the question implies that someone's going to try. But you know what? The court already dealt with all the issues. The court knows. <laughs> it's God that justified. Nothing missed his court. Okay, well, now let's go down. Then, If, if, if God's not the one that's going to come along and agree with the accusation and the indictment, how about let's ask the son? It says, who is he that condemneth? Well, it's Christ that died. Yea, rather that is risen again. Okay, what is that proof? If, if the question is one of condemnation, Christ is the one who died. He's the one that did take my condemnation. And he was risen again. Proving that the, the very issue of the justice of God was dealt with. And the evidence is God raised him from the dead. But not only that, it doesn't stop there. He's even at the right hand of God. The Lord, uh, 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 Pastor Rick last night, when he talked about that, that verse, when the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, right at the end, he's, it, it, in Psalms, he says, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Luke says, into thy hands I command. I understand, you check the definitions, and one possibility is to mean the same concept, but they also mean something different. Not only was he committing his spirit to the Father when he says, I command. Command is the idea, presenting for approval and acceptance. At Calvary there. It's like he's saying to the father, okay, father, I, I checked all the boxes, crossed all the T's, all the verses, and I commend for final approval my spirit. I'm entrusting it with your decision and your conclusion. And when the father not just raised Christ from the dead, but then when the Lord Jesus Christ is sitting at his right hand, what's the father's? What's the father saying about that then? Approved. <laughs> a big stamp of approval. And not only that, when it says, who also maketh intercession for us. Understand something about that verse right there. We have the idea in Christianity that the Lord Jesus Christ is somehow pleading and begging the father each and every day. Oh, I saw John again. He just, he went to that Bible conference and got a tattoo on his back. Oh, God, please <laughs> forgive that guy. <laughs> Some of y'all need to, Listen, there is a context around that, okay? That, that could be really bad. But, you know. but when that verse says he makes intercession, it's not that the Lord Jesus Christ is beseeching and begging the Father, oh, please forgive John. He continues to sin that sin and do that thing and have that thought, oh, God. That's not the sense. The work is done. The sin's been forgiven. His presence at the Father's right hand is the intercession. When the adversary stands up and accuses you and me, he's the accuser of the brethren, as it were, right? It's as though the Lord Jesus Christ just holds his hands up and to the Father and says, now, we had this discussion, didn't we? I've got the proof. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Notice the question is a who, but the way he answers it is not by giving to the name of a person. He answers it by looking at and dealing with life. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or makingness or peril? All the things that people tend to look at as the barometer or measure as to whether or not they have been separated by the love of God or from the love of God. Don't people say that? They say, oh, if this, if this is happening in your life, then that means God's mad at you. Mrs. Jordan was telling me about just the other night about someone in their ministry whose young, beautiful daughter went home to be with the Lord. I, I hope you don't mind me sharing this, but that the husband was told by members of, I think, both sides of the family, it was because of some sin he did or something that he failed to reconcile that God did this. Isn't that awful, by the way? People tend to do that. They look at tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword, and they think, oh, these are the signs from God that he's mad at me or that I've been separated from his love. Paul lists these things to say, these are, these are not how you decide whether or not you're in the love of God. In fact, if anything, these things are the evidence that we are in the beloved. He goes on to say, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Listen, that's not God who's counting us as sheep for the slaughter. If anything, the opposition to the believers is the evidence, not the only one, but it is the evidence that God is for us, that someone else is against us. And in verse 37, nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through who? Him that loved us. Let's just take a moment on verse 37. I want to make sure that we think about that verse the right way. Verse 37 is not saying that we become more than conquerors as we endure through some kind of affliction. Christ already is the conqueror. We are in Him, more than conquerors, through Him that loved us. Not through our ability to feel loved, or feel like we're worthy, or even to endure through the suffering. That verse 37, that's a statement of our identity already. We, this is how God sees us. We are already more than conquerors. So by the time we come to verse 38, are there some things we should be persuaded by and about? What should we be persuaded by? Well, let's just read it. It's interesting. He says that neither, what's the first one listed? It's interesting that he lists death first before life. Because people do think that death is the final termination point of everything. Your existence and everything. Purpose, meaning. Death is, they say, the thing that most people are most afraid of. The other one is public speaking. So, <laughs> right? You know, that's why you have a big pulpit so you can't see our, our knees shaking, right? <laughs> kind of, right? Why would he list death first? 
Think about it. From, from a human perspective, death sure looks like it's the end. That person laying there, my, my mom just, just died a few weeks ago. It's kind of tough. Some of you all have experienced that before. I, I now can relate to your experience. You, it, death is pretty final. Or is it? See, when that verse says, I'm persuaded, not, not even death can separate us. As strong as king, sin, and death have been, they cannot separate you from the love of God. But you realize also he goes on to say life because some people are as afraid of life as they are of death. They're afraid to live. Living can be kind of a scary thing. To get, we, we get so in our comfort zone, and don't you mess up that comfort zone because then I'm just all upset and rattled. I understand that. I got my comfort zones too, right? But sometimes to get out of that comfort zone, you know what? You got to grow a little bit, as they say, and expand. You know, sometimes it hurts. A lot of times it hurts. So people tend sometimes to be more afraid of death than they are of life. But regardless of what spectrum it is, it cannot separate you from the love of God. He says, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life. Now, how about, how about the angels, principalities, powers? That, that whole angelic conflict, that they can't separate you from the love of God in Christ. How about things present? How about anything? The, the chart, we could put the chart, hang it up, right? How about things present? Nothing in the present dispensation, no things to come. Nothing in a future dispensation. Changing from the dispensation of grace to the tribulation period, that is when God changes the program, Nothing in either program is going to separate you from the love of God. When he returns to the prophecy program, when he, when he sets up the kingdom, that can't separate you from the love of God. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature. It's fascinating. He says any other creature. It's like all these things are living capacity and power like a creature. Shall be able to separate us. Make that phrase, connect that phrase. Something about able, able. God is able. These things are not able to separate us from the love of God. And where is the love of God located? Where is it? That love of God is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In order for you and me to be separated from the love of God, someone else would have to be separated from the love of God. That'd be the Lord Jesus Christ. The one time when the Lord Jesus Christ was, in a sense, separated from his love is when from the cross he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Christ himself personally experienced what it was like to be, have life, death, angels, principalities, powers, things present, separate him from the love of God. Christ experienced that. And we're in Christ. And that separation is never going to happen again. The love of God's in Christ. Let me wrap this up by saying this, asking this question. The goal of this message, and not just this message, but as we've tried to build over the weekend is the idea of how does, how does rejoicing in hope sustain us through 
the troubles in life? Well, again, I'll ask it this way. In the last, say, 25, 35, 40 minutes and so forth, we've been thinking about these verses, right? Have you been thinking so much about the troubles? So what did it do? It got our mind off that and put it on the reality of how God views all this. So as we seek to rejoice in hope and then be patient in tribulation and then being instant in prayer and then getting on with the ministry, distributing the necessity of saints and giving to hospitality, we're all hurting at some point. Let's just help each other out by keeping pointing each other to the word of God. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for the time to look into your word this morning. And as, we, as we've read here, this is such a marvelous passage of scripture that it doesn't matter how many times we've all read this. And we've read this many, many times, conference after conference after conference. It still lifts our heart, brings us great encouragement and strength as it, as it is designed to do. We, Father, we thank you that you tell us here in these very verses how you see all this. We thank you that it indeed has the capacity and ability to strengthen us, to encourage us, to equip us to keep our eyes focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.